Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. It's not all about big names and big projects here on the No Film School Podcast. Some of our best conversations take place with artists who are just starting to find their way in the world. Really, all of us should be able to relate to these guests on a deeper level since we hear problems that many of us are still struggling with as we make our own way through the industry. On today's final installment of the best of the No Film School podcast for 2018, we'll take a look back at some of these conversations and trace through what it can cost to make a film. Whether it be a short or a feature, documentary or narrative, you're bound to walk away with some advice that will be of aid on your future projects. We'll start off with an episode I recorded featuring a filmmaker named Tony Grayson. After struggling with film in New York City for years, Tony moved back home to Chicago, reevaluated his artistic aspirations, and as a result was able to pull off something that sounds like it should have been impossible. He made a short film for $4.50 that was later accepted into South by Southwest. Let's take a listen to how he did it in this excerpt from How to Make a Short Film for $4.50. You were in Chicago when you decided to make uh, this first short that we were talking about, Found Footage. What, what's the full title? Yeah, I'm just going to refer to it as Found Footage. Yeah, we can just call it Found <laughs> <Okay>. Footage. <laughs> I support that. Um, so uh, you were in Chicago, uh, yeah. and it served as an impetus for you to create this short. Um, what happened in that time that made you want to create this short? Sure. So... It was basically, you know, two years of feeling unfulfilled in New York and being so precious and focused on perfection. And then I get to Chicago and people are just creating constantly and I'm in this environment. And so we were doing this one backyard show where um, we the first half would be live and then we'd screen films in the second half. Hmm. And I think it was my first or second week there. And I'm like, I'm just going to make a film and screen it here next week. Hmm. Um, and so my wow. roommate Dan had this um, beat up Sony Handycam which was, you know, shot most of his childhood, basically, um, from the 90s. And um, and I went to my dad's neuroscience lab, and I was just, you know, he's a neuroscientist at UIC in Chicago, and I was just, I just wanted to use that space because I thought it would be interesting on the Handycam. And I was just like, let me shoot some test footage um, to see what this is. This was like Tuesday night. The screening is going to be Saturday. Um, so I just kind of handheld, shot some test footage and everything like that for about 45 minutes or so. And I... Um, you know, my dad just had a long day of work, <laughs> and so I didn't want to, like, and he was acting in it, and I didn't want to, like, put him out. And so the plan was, like, Friday I was going to get a much bigger shoot. I was going to get some crew members but still have it be low-key and everything like that and get some other actors and, you know, make mm-hmm. it a bigger story and everything. Mm-hmm. And I got back Tuesday night, and I was like, I don't want to put my dad out again. He's, like, a 60-year-old neuroscientist that is, you know. So I was looking at the footage, and I was like, I can actually make a film out of this. And, mm-hmm. you know, while I was filming it, I was kind of, like, coaching him through things and having him do different things and stuff like that. And he was amazing to work with, actually. Um, and I was looking over, and I was like, I'm just going to make it out of this. Um, so I discovered a lot, you know, through posts and everything like that, and then ended up screening it, and it went over well at the backyard, and so I was like, I'll submit this to festivals now. So your post was only four days, or did you decide yeah. to... Yeah. yeah, it was 45 minutes of shooting, and then it was a few days of post, basically, yeah. Wow. And, you know, my roommate, I it was really cool because I was just totally process-oriented the entire time while making this. Mm-hmm. You know, I while I was in film school, I raised 
$5,000. I had an 18-person crew at a four-day shoot. I had over 180 drafts of that script on my computer, which is just absurd. Don't do that. <laughs> just make it before you do that. But um, yeah. it was – I just obsessed over it. I lost sleep. It was just like this is going to be perfect and everything. And that film will never see the light of day. Not so. I'm not even... going to show it to anyone. No. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm not showing you, John. <laughs> I um, see we'll put it in the article. Don't... <laughs> I'm going to force you. Um, and then this thing that I make, uh, just like, I'm going to make this for fun and discover what it is through making it, of course, is the thing that ends up, you know, bringing me to South by. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, while Dan is uploading, my roommate Dan was um, uploading the footage for me. Um, and he was just like hitting the side of the camera and it was making the computer glitch. And then he just click rewind. And so it would just randomly rewind over and over and over again. It was just like, all right, I guess I'm going to discover what that means while in post. You know what I mean? Now that there's all these rewind effects and everything. And so I just kind of organically discovered it and collaborated with it. And it's almost easier that way. Um, my roommate Zach paints on thrift store paintings a lot of the times. And he finds it easier <laughs> instead of just looking at a blank canvas and just feeling stuck. He just is inspired off the thrift store painting and collaborates with that. And suddenly it's it, your like creativity starts flowing, you know. So that's kind of what it felt like. So then, can you talk a little bit about like what it actually took in terms of resources to make this movie possible? Um, because, uh, for example, like strategies that kept it low stress, low budget. Uh, one of which, I guess, would be the fact that it's entirely narrated over. There's like no sound. That helps a lot. Um, yeah. And you just said, you know, it was essentially test footage. Uh, when did you decide, like, what what were the things that you did with that $4.50 that made it more of a complete package after the test footage that you shot? Sure. That money was the cost of the train ride, basically, <laughs> riding the public transit, yeah. so nothing. Um, my roommate, it was basically a thing of, like, looking... I looked backwards and could kind of connect the dots of like, oh, I was just looking at what resources I had at my disposal. Yeah. I had this lab, I had my dad... Uh, and I know he would. He said he would act in it. You know, he's letting me use this space. I have this handy cam. That was the camera that I have. Um, my roommate had this canopy, this thing to, um, you know, uh, hook it up to the computer and upload it on. Um, but that was it. Oh, my dad also had. He's a. He plays guitar and had this old recorder that I recorded off my. I use a computer voice, and I was uh, pressing play on my computer and recording it off my laptop speakers with that. Um, and it was, and there's synth music and my roommate Dan does synth music. So, and yeah, that's basically, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) It helps that, you know, the story itself, Mm -hmm. if it was told with a different camera, I don't think it would be as successful. Like having, having these resources, like looking at what you have kind of informs what the story is going to be, which Mm -hmm. is really important because, you know, if I was trying to make this like high budget thing and I was using this beat up handy cam, it's not going to work, you know, if I wanted this like really clean cut, polished commercial looking thing, you know. So looking at those resources and kind of discovering organically what the story is through that was what was so exciting to me about it. Yeah, we, uh, we, we hear a lot. It's told again and again, the advice, like the best tool for the job is the one that the job needs. But it seems like you can also look at that uh, conversely as like, because you're actually making the shoot dependent on the tool. Yeah, there you know was. What I mean, uh, my buddy Sam is a photographer, and he said there was some photographer that said the best camera that you have is the one that you have on you, or something like mm. that. So mm-hmm. it was sort of like that of like, I have this handy cam, and then you kind of discover what it is, make yeah. what would be good for that handy yeah, cam. Yeah, exactly. Great. Yeah. The feature equivalent of this feat 
would be what director Alejandro Montoya Marin pulled off this year on Robert Rodriguez's TV show, Rebel Without a Crew. With only $7,000, 14 days, and no crew, he was able to make a full-length feature film that is currently making its way around the festival circuit. No Film School's two New Mexico-based contributors, Oakley Anderson Moore and Chris Boone, sat down with Marine and discussed how he was able to pull it off in this excerpt from the episode, How to Shoot a Feature Film for Only $7,000. I wanted to do lo-fi because I think it's a movie that once this movie gets made with a, a, a competent budget and crew, I think it could do something. I think it could be a movie that inspires a lot of people, but I can't do it for seven grand. And that's what mm -hmm. I needed to. You have to know what your capabilities are. Uh -huh. And that was not it. And, lo and you mentioned lo-fi. That's another one of your shorts that mm -hmm. you have. You, so it sounds like you have a feature version of that. Mm -hmm. But as you're saying, you know your limitations. This is not the right one for seven grand, 14 shoot days. But Monday, as a short, you saw, okay, I can blow this out. And like I said, have fun with it. Make it action. Exactly. And make it different. It's not rom-com. And, so. and plus, the, the nature of the short or the project is that the day slowly derails. So it lends itself to handheld and just da da da. So I'm like, okay, that that will add to the franticness of the the situation. So in those three days or before Monday morning eight a.m. when you had to finish the script, yeah, were you constantly thinking? Was it useful to know that it would be for seven thousand dollars if accepted? And as that was that factoring into like, mm -hmm. would you write a scene and be like, you know what, there's just no way? Oh yeah, oh definitely. And how did you gauge? what that limit would be because there are I mean I've seen Monday and there are a lot of complicated things it's not a film I would have seen and been like oh yeah that's clearly only seven thousand dollars I mean there's like stunts and guns and lots of locations and explosions you know, oh yeah an exploding van you know the exploding van came it was we got lucky but I'll tell that uh, you just have to <laughs> I just happened that's to actually it. kill someone in a event now <laughs> No, we, we but yeah, I mean, how when you're writing, like, what's the limit that you know you knew to write the script that that would still be within seven thousand? Well, I chose a lot of locations to keep the short dynamic. That was my goal. My goal is to like let's make it fun, dynamic. Don't let them give don't give them a second for them to get bored. Because as a let's be honest, we're all we're all douchebags. As soon as you find out, Chris especially. Oh, Chris, <laughs> thank you very much. No, but as soon as you hear seven thousand dollars, the filmmaker and everyone's like, "I could have done better." It's always, you know, people are like that. So I wanted them to come in, and as soon as the movie starts, it's like you don't. It doesn't slow down, so it doesn't give them that chance to start nitpicking. Of course, the movie's not perfect. We didn't have a crew, man. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to cam up, direct, produce, and AC. Like that, and help grip. Like I'm tired. <laughs> so, did they let you have anybody? Like that a plus one. So he had, had a plus one. Plus one meaning what exactly? What he DP'd and did sound and boom. And who is this? Ryan Halsey. Okay, so okay, like so you could pick your college. Plus one. Mm -hmm. And you picked okay. your college roommate. He's nice. my boy. Yeah, yeah. So you brought Ryan along to do that. But then, other than that, it's that it's just you two and your cast. Well, see, the funny Basically, thing is, right? Because that's. I mean, basically, but I found a loophole. Uh huh. My second actor is also an AD. Ah. So we he, didn't make him an AD. He's AD'd all my projects. So technically, as long as he was shooting scenes, he could help us there. Nice. That's awesome. Well, yeah. Clever. So, so you Thank can just you. get anybody to do as long as you can rope people in to do the work. 
that well, were already part of the project. Yeah. And well, some and, and not well, we all all the filmmakers got help from actors like the Austin actors that we got, and you know the people that they brought. And I, I thought one of them brought people from L.A. Whatever. Um, they were all very like hands-on. Like they saw what we were going through, and it's like, look, this is no time for being a diva. Like I can't do this alone, and I when and that's why I will never put a film by and then my name because it's bullshit. I feel the exact same way it's about bullshit. that. Yeah, because it's such a uh, collaborative that's effort. Definitely so you're Spielberg ends, but <laughs> or Scorsese. <laughs> But yeah, very cool. they were all super helpful. Like I had actors, Jamie picking up cables and doing this, and one of the actors going to get us like coffee. Like we were all working because it's like, look, we don't have time, and we're trying to do. It's not a movie that's just sit still on a wide and then punch and punch and no, we we pan, boom, pan, zoom. Like we we wanted to be dynamic, so it's it was very time consuming. So after you wrote the script. And you didn't know for sure if it would get accepted and picked. And you're keeping the $7,000 in mind. Once you got approved, I've just, you know, I, from a production point of view, what was the process at that point? Especially with the 14 days and the limited budget, where did you know you had to spend? Like, what was your allotment? Like, where did you spend most of that money? What ended up being the highest costing bits that you knew you needed? A camera and sound, like, it comes out of your budget. Um... And particularly sound. I think I went in the middle with camera because, I mean, we could put a little grain in there and it looks more filmy to, and it helps hide the, uh, the out-of-focus shots because there are several out-of-focus shots, I will admit. Um, we didn't have a monitor. We didn't have a fucking follow focus. So in other words, your monitor is the little LCD on screen the on the And camera. the focus is on the lens oh. as I'm panning on a dolly and directing. <laughs> so yes, the movie does have out of focus shots, but it doesn't look horrible. Like, or else I would have been like, we're doing it again. This no, you said there are a lot of out of focus shots. Uh, I, w I wouldn't say there are a lot. There are a few, but I think it lends. I didn't notice. It, oh, thank and, you. And I only <laughs> say that, and I don't say that like, there are out of focus shots, but I mean, it's Just shots 25, 27 beats. No, but I mean, if you're trying to shoot a feature. <laughs> list. If you're trying to shoot a feature film in 14 days, you just have to go, go, go. go, go but I go. mean, but if we go back and look at films that were shot on film, mm -hmm. All of us have favorite films, and we can all pick out shots that are out of focus because there is no monitor. They don't know what it looks no. like. And you know what? If that was the best take, you're going to take a soft shot because it was the best take. And um, I, don't, yep. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think people also will forgive that as long as it's, like you said, it's movie, movie, moving. Yeah. It's, 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 your movie's highly entertaining. I was definitely like... I'm on for this ride, and I was, and I really could tell how you had leaned into this process. It looked, it looked like you guys, as hard as it was, probably had a lot of fun too making it. We did, we did, but yeah, I was. It was fun. It's it's fun, but it was fun. Like that's hilarious. Let's get back to work because we have no time to spend. <laughs> but yeah. to come back to the to the question, the number priority number one priority was sound. I got the most expensive sound kit, and I think none of the other filmmakers did, but. It's because, hey, that's that's who that's what they wanted to do. In my opinion, and this is my opinion, I feel that people will forgive an out-of-focus shot, but they won't forgive fucking shitty sound. I totally agree with that. And what we did to kind of cover our asses was we had a boom and we had three loves. One love on an actor, one love on an actor, and another love standing there just recording whatever it can. You got, I mean, options because you don't, you're not allowed to sh reshoot anything. Oh. Once the 14 days are done, it's done. done. It's done. A 
Of course, not all of us could pull off making films on such a shoestring budget, and for that reason, Liz Nord brought together a great panel of experts at the Camden International Film Festival this year to discuss virtually every single way you can find funding for your film. Joining her are Haley Pappas, head of Riot Films, Caroline Von Kuhn, director of artist development at SF Film, and Leah Giblin, head of grants at Cinereach. They are responsible for getting millions of dollars to independent filmmakers each year through grants and financing, and they share some valuable tips with us in this episode titled, 100 Different Ways to Get Your Film Funded. I want to take a much more, you know, step outside of your organizations and and lay out for people how are documentary films and narrative films being financed. I know it's it's quite different, but just in broad strokes, what are what are the the pathways to funding for filmmakers that are sort of happening now? I think one thing um, to kind of keep it a little bit in the on the nonprofit side of things is that one thing we're looking at is all of these um, distributors who are getting into production, like the Netflix, obviously, <laughs> who's instead of um, acquiring as many films or the Amazons or Annapurna or A24, really any of those bigger distributors who have money, they're getting in a lot earlier and sometimes they're fully financing for the financial control, the creative control. So for the nonprofit perspective, we keep thinking about um, one, just being San Francisco, not New York or LA. What's what's our kind of identity there? How is that an advantage? Um, and so we're focusing on development money and as much soft money as possible because you know there there is the avenue that a producer can get into bed with a Netflix or Amazon and get the full financing. We want to make sure that the money and the any other additional support we're, we're giving them is an expensive money. I think about that a lot as a filmmaker. Wh- of what does soft money mean? Soft money means um, like the, the non-recoupable grants. So we're not investing equity in these films. We partner with foundations or other nonprofits and put money in that we never have to see back. So the filmmakers don't financially owe anyone anything. Um, so that's kind of been a, a, fo- a focus of ours. But it is interesting seeing so many of the bigger players coming in a lot earlier. And in our backyard, the... Facebooks and Googles and Apples and figuring out what that means with how much money they've just announced uh, that they're going to be putting into films or the horrible word content, um, (laughs) which just makes me cringe. Um, So that doesn't totally answer your question, but just kind of, yeah, something we think about of like what what our role is is as a nonprofit in the in the film industry. If we were to just list, like like to bang out a list of here's where films get money. They get money from grants. They get money from crowdfunding. They get money from individual donors. They put things on their credit cards. What, what else? Yeah, I mean, just in terms of like what I and we at Riot are seeing, I'm not seeing nearly as much crowdfunding anymore. Um, I actually think thankfully, because I think it's a shame, it's, I think it's, it takes up a lot of time and resources of the filmmakers and that's understandably maybe not their skill set and I'd prefer for them to just be making a film and other people to do the financing. But um, we are seeing, thankfully, still a lot of soft funding. Um, I don't know that the documentary industry would be here Mm -hmm. without that. It's actually kind of interesting to see that Netflix and various other distributors are potentially (laughs) profiting off of soft funding. Um, We are still seeing, you know... uh, private investors or donors at times. Um, Yes, people's own cash and capital. I'm seeing less and less sort of co-producers or production entities that are actively financing as much as they are, um, you know, 
perhaps putting in development funding, right? Or seed funding to get some sort of like teaser materials together to then take out to market, whether that's pitching to buyers like, you know, and distributors like Netflix and Amazon or whatever, or if it's also having more materials to then submit for grant applications. Um, So yeah, it does feel like the process and sort of like the stages of the process are a bit in a pendulum swing right now. And like they've like taken a drastic turn into one direction where people are pitching earlier and trying to get essentially money from the end buyer earlier. And I do wonder if we'll see it swing back the other direction, especially because, you know, we've in the doc industry, at least this summer, seen um, such tremendous results in theatrical distribution that I think it's like it's inevitable that it's going to change the industry and the way that we're financing a bit. Hopefully. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you you both are speaking to it in such sophisticated ways. I'm going to make it a little basic. Um, <laughs> uh, so as mentioned, there's the there are these basic sort of routes that one can take, but usually you're taking multiple routes yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you're looking to finance a film. So you, you, you want to explore what grant opportunities are available to you. Um, and there's very specific sort of interests that mm-hmm. define those grant opportunities. Um, and so, again, it's not like there's everything, but there's very specific uh, sort of places that you can look for that, that align with who you are as a filmmaker and the type of film that you're making. Um, there's also, as we were talking about, equity, financing, where you have investors. So the difference between soft money, like grants and funding, um, which is non-recoupable, which means that no one's looking to have that money returned to them and not looking to have that returned to them with any kind of interest. When you're talking about working with equity financiers um, or investors, it is about the intention that they're investing their money in the project to have it returned to them at a later point, usually with a premium with interest involved. Um, And they're going to have different levels at which they're comfortable taking those risks and putting that significant amount of funding, financing really, forward at any point. Um, And they might, um, and they're looking to protect those those interests once they've put in as well. And they can sort of then uh, set some terms as to who, what else, what other kinds of money um, and will be involved. Um, Then there's other sorts of, again, some different ingredients that might be a part of your financing with film. If you are making a documentary, then potentially you'd think about public broadcasting. Um, ITVS has a number of uh, avenues to through which you might share your project, and some are specific programs based upon the background of the filmmaker. Um, others are more just a kind of a general project inquiry and uh, the amounts at which they might get involved. I, I can't speak to exactly um, at this point what is typical, but it's still, you know, dependent upon the film's budget, not necessarily going to resolve all the needs of the film. Um, as um, was mentioned, there is crowdfunding, um, and it requires a great deal of work, the same way that it requires a great deal of work to cultivate financier yeah relationships and and networks and sometimes it's very difficult to to if you if you don't automatically if you're not automatically a part of those networks how do you meet the people who have the level of financing that you want to help you with your film it's tricky so um so crowdfunding is a more immediate opportunity for some people because it's not about whether or not your project is in alignment with whatever grant opportunity is outlined in 
by their interests and mission, um, and it's not subject to the tastes and the determinations of a, of a committee or of another group. Um, but it is then based upon your own kind of determination and um, ingenuity and, uh, yeah, sort of tirelessness in um, getting people excited from at all sorts of smaller levels that culminates in a, in a resource that you're, that's totally at, you know, yours to take. So though, if, if you guys think of any other things that are very basic. No, I would just, I would just add an echo that, um, yeah, I do see, especially with docs, a good number of films that are pre-selling their rights or territories, especially with international films, um, you know, European buyers and distributors are significantly different than what we have here in North America. Um, they tend to like to buy those rights and territories earlier, and it is a way to finance your production. Um, we're not necessarily opposed to it. It does just change the landscape of the ultimate finished product that you have, um, how you can exploit rights and territories, what you can sell for, who you can sell to, um, you know, what your potential upside is. It definitely changes that dynamic, but often it, you know, it can be a good selling point or frankly when you're in a bind it can help get you through you know get you across a certain threshold um but we definitely see that a lot especially with international films less so domestic it's exciting that um docs are really sexy right now i mean looking at kind of back to your comments about the box office of like mr rogers documentary and then you know rbg like that the fact that there's proven audiences for these films and there's um docs aren't kind of like a dirty word of like you know narratives being the kind of like you know alluring ones and i think with that kind of um you know sexiness of documentary which is both a like financial incentive and a proof of audience being out there it's exciting that there is a lot of money for a documentary right now and um I think there, but it is interesting to see from the individual perspective, those who used to write checks as non-recoupable grants as individuals or, you know, for fiscally sponsored filmmakers now want to do equity investments because they see that there is a possibility. It's not just getting that story out there, helping with the outreach campaign or having the educational screenings. They actually see it as a financial investment in a way that changes things. Again, every film is structured, every film financing is structured differently, but are there general directions that docs go versus narrative? Like how does how do the options you all laid out there play out between within doc within and, our, and narrative? Within our world? Within your world or within the, the broader world? Like generally speaking, which are the paths that narratives are taking versus docs in these options that you've laid out there? Like I should step back and say it sounds like, you know, what most filmmakers are doing is some combination of the options that you've mentioned, including working with your organizations. And so is there a sort of general combination that leans more towards doc versus narrative? I can't speak to narrative, but on the doc side, what I see most often is a combination of soft funding and equity partners, um, like to be to be as simple as, you know, a few grants that maybe came in really early for smaller amounts to help them get started. Then they were able to put together some materials. They went out to a producer, co-producers, whatever, who came in and made an equity investment to participate in the project. And then some combination of that team found their way across the finish line. One thing to consider when comparing uh, funding and financing models for documentary versus fiction is a lot more often in the documentary side you're seeing people financing and fundraising as they make the film as they go along so it's kind of like what do they have what do they need what can they um, acquire that will allow them 
to build the momentum to keep going, produce another part of the film, demonstrate the progress, and also within that progress, demonstrate what still is ahead, where, you know, like, well, we've finished our shooting, now we need to find an editor, um, so forth and so on. Whereas with a lot of fiction financing, there's an expectation to raise the full amount of the budget um, prior to beginning production because you don't want to... Uh, well, it's very difficult to convince, an, it depends on the budget level, but it's very difficult to convince a financier, for instance, to put in several hundred thousand dollars if they don't know where you're going to find the rest of the budget. Um, so they're a lot less likely to take that risk unless they understand where all the pieces fit together, what the plan is, and also what the terms of that are so that whatever their needs are in this relationship that we're talking about, a transactional um, as it can very basically be, that they're confident that their interests are being addressed and secured. So that's one way of looking at it. But so, you know, with, particularly with documentary, but it's also true in fiction film, there is this um, challenge uh, always made to the filmmakers. How much can they do on their own before they have something that they can take to others? And sometimes that's, you know, if you're, if you have, um, been successful in making other films, whether they're shorts or features, you're, you have an advantage. You have like something that you can point to that people might really love or um, see the potential um, in what what you're capable of as an artist and project that into how you speak about what you want to do next. But if you don't have a previous work or just, I don't know, you're looking to do something very different, for instance, then it's a little bit about having to come forth on your own and uh, until someone can see the thing that you're talking about and go with you that on that um, journey as it were. Um, so that's the frustration for a lot of filmmakers. What if you don't have that level of personal capital or the the time of course is, is is just as sometimes as valuable as the money, um, to spend really pursuing that idea, getting, uh, shooting it in a way that looks the way that you would hope it for, for it to look. Um, and again, even putting together a, a successful sample trailer might involve working with an editor or some people get a little bit more, um, advanced and thinking that they're going to get it color corrected and everything. I don't know. There's a, there's different levels of what people feel like they need to, to produce in order to um, generate the excitement to secure more resources. But um, anyhow, that's just kind of an, an overview of how I see financing being put I, together. I totally agree. I think it's... Um, I'm not envious of documentary filmmakers who have to do this. I think that the even the directors, they have to be a 95% producer all the time because, as Leah said, it's going from almost like going paycheck to paycheck, and they constantly stop. Whereas in narrative, you have the template of a script to fall back on. It's understand. It's it's not theoretical. It's not going to shift as dramatically. Yes, things change at every stage of production, but with a documentary, yeah, you're. I think it's so backwards that in order, even like the the um, soft money, the the grants that you would apply for for the development, you know, funding that um, would be the like. Easiest, I'm using air quotes for you listeners <laughs> to get. <laughs> so not easiest. Um, you know, we only, each of us who are reviewing these have the limited imagination that we have. And we might review many, we might uh, we might be capable of an imagination that sees the potential in your project. But you, you don't know who's reviewing your applications, even at an organization. Um, and so for you to have to have some form of media, as, as Leah said, that's like well edited that that proves all the things you want to prove to your potential funder that you're getting 
you know, $10,000 or $25,000 to barely make ends meet to just get to production. But you need that money because it's happening right now. And if you miss this window, then you can't even make your movie. Like it's, the funding is so challenging. Going from zero to that first money, I think is the hardest part. Um, Cause you basically have to like go into debt to do that. I think, um, you know, there's very few Alex Gibney's and Errol Morris's out there that like either can afford to, or can, the money can come in more easily. So I think it's that development money that we were talking about that is like, it's the hardest, it's the hardest to crack. For even more information on how to effectively manage your budget, here's an excerpt from an episode titled No Business School, How to Save Time and Money on Your Films. Liz Nord is joined by producer Stephen R. Morse, whose films include the documentaries Amanda Knox and Eurotrump, to discuss how his education at Oxford Business School changed the way he makes movies. Here are a few points he shared on how to run an efficient production and why it's so important to do so. Sure. So the first project I produced was Amanda Knox. And during that time, I was working as a journalist at the beginning of that project. And then I started working at startups while I was making that project and working for startups where, you know, you have to be efficient. You get a couple million bucks from some investors. And if you don't spend that money properly, you're out of a job. It's, it's You have to keep building, building, building. So I'd say that working for startups while making the Amanda Knox documentary that Netflix eventually bought and will be a Netflix original for all of perpetuity. Um, that That's what taught me about how to be efficient originally. Then I went to business school at the University of Oxford, and that's where my mind really opened up to what could be done to reform the film industry. Did you go to business school thinking you were staying in film or thinking you were moving on to some business, other business venture? I went in with an open mind, but while I was there, I just really could see every time that someone would talk about, here's a problem and here's how to solve it, I'd think, why has no one tried to solve this problem in the film business before? Why is film so ancient? Why has technology that has hit our lives in every other way not really hit us in the film business? Yes, you could argue that Netflix does streaming and internet distribution and that is technology, which it is, but there are so many other elements of this film industry that are so archaic, it is wild. So give me some examples. Like, I know that you sort of feel like the industry is broken. How? Yeah, so I'd say just there are processes that take so much time and money. This idea of having sales agents and distributors to get your projects out there, to get them to Netflix, Hulu, to get them to anyone who needs it, that's such a waste of 20 30% of your money. That, and I've, I've, I've paid that money. And when you think, oh, you're just paying a middleman to to distribute your product, and then they're taking twenty or thirty percent, and if you have a sales agent and a distributor on board, then there goes fifty percent of your your budget. Ooh, that is that is so crazy. And this is for human labor. It's not like it's an automatic process. Um, I argue though that you could even somehow blame film festivals for this inefficiency, where you have this circuit and everyone has to apply manually and send their film in, and you have human curators who are deciding what can go in and not go in. And then then you wait six months to find out if you're in, and then you play it there for a year before you can even get it out there. Exactly. That is exactly what I'm talking about. And when you think about efficiency, that is not efficient. It's great to win film festival awards, but that, for many filmmakers, does not translate to money in their pockets. So 
that is a future that I hope will, will exist where people can have award success and also financial success at the same time. I can't imagine one of our listeners who would disagree with that, you know, that hope. Um, okay, so so the big like the kind of like point I'm eventually getting to with all this is that there was such a big difference in process between Amanda Knox and Eurotrump. Amanda Knox was traditional, took five years, you know, did get success in the doc world, but with a Netflix pickup and everything. But then Eurotrump was like conceived, shot, and distributed in less than one year. How, what happened in between? What did you learn? Yeah, no, (laughs) I learned about process and making things efficiently Um, and about simultaneous processes, I think is is a really interesting thing, right? Like while we were shooting Wilders, or sorry, Eurotrump, as as the film is called now, originally it was called Wilders, but then we changed it. Oh, it's only called Wilders in the Netherlands now. uh, And it's Eurotrump everywhere else. Uh, We realized that if you are editing while you're shooting, if you're doing X while doing Y, there's no reason to wait. It's just always about being three steps ahead and thinking, okay, what is next in our process? What is going to hold us up in a week? What is going to hold us up in a month? And if you can get paperwork started on insurance and you can get little things done here and there and know who your lawyer is already before you need that lawyer and, oh God, hiring lawyers is the worst part of this business because you need specific lawyers to do every little thing for you and different people have different areas of expertise. But it's just a matter of knowing processes and then, and again, I know these processes now having done it once or twice already, but staying on top of that is, I think, the most important thing. Yeah. So without even knowing it, you segued us so nicely because you um, you wrote this fantastic article for No Film School about things that you learned in business school that you then sort of started applying to your work in film. And the first one was run simultaneous processes. So you set us up. Um, and I, I noted them before our conversation. So the second one, you thank had God written, you noted them. <laughs> <laughs> the second, see, producer always prepared. The second one that um, you had noted was no deal is a deal until it's a deal, which I feel like needs to be said in like an old timey accent. Yes. But tell us, tell us what that is about. Yeah. So honestly, it's based on a true story uh, where the BBC wanted to buy our Euro Trump project, and we had gone so far along with them. They'd sent us contracts, and we were negotiating those contracts. And then uh, just bureaucracy, bureaucracy, bureaucracy. Essentially, the woman we were dealing with, the executive we were dealing with, she went on vacation. And then her boss decided he didn't like the project for whatever reason. No. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. There's nothing you – so that was a hard lesson because I'd say for, let's say, three or four weeks. It was actually one year ago today probably, because I was at Berlin at the film festival when it happened, and I was just enjoying the film festival, thinking, oh, we have a deal. I don't need to be meeting. I canceled all my meetings with other distributors, thinking, oh, we're going to work with the BBC on this. We have a contract already. I don't need to be wasting other people's time or or taking their money. They're going to finance the rest of this project. We're sitting pretty. We have what we need at this stage. But then that deal fell through. And it was a hard, hard learning experience for me. Uh, I definitely did not eat much for a month. I was definitely miserable for a month until we found another partner who turned out was Vice to work with on, on this project. But it was just a miserable, miserable experience. And I don't even have any advice to say what what you could do in that situation other than keep hustling and keep 
Never assume that someone is going to sign with you. There are deals probably that fall through every day for any number of legitimate and illegitimate reasons. Right. Someone might not like the way you look. Someone might, might you know, at the BBC, they maybe thought, oh, they're too American or they're too this or that. Who knows what it is? Someone did like us. And then it could be internal politics. Maybe someone there just didn't like something or thought, oh, this is a conservative subject and we should only be making things about liberal subjects. Uh, that's probably what happens. Or someone <laughs> wanted to undercut you know, one executive wanted to undercut another executive and has nothing to do with the project. Exactly. Yeah, all kinds of things. Exactly. I don't want to speculate, but it was a harrowing experience that, again, far worse things happen to people every single day. But in terms of work, thinking, OK, we have our money, we're in, we're set, we're good, we don't have to do anything anymore. Whew. That 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 is about as bad as it gets from my perspective. Well, I know that you said that you don't um, – really have advice from that. But I'm wondering, will you approach deal-making differently or have you approached deal-making differently since that experience? I will never sit pretty and sit, you know, happy until the deal is signed, until the initials are on that paper. And then and then even once the deal is signed, you need to make sure the money's coming through. And that's that's your job, your distributor's job, your sales agent's job to make sure that that money is coming through. And, and you you can't really stop until that money comes through. Yeah. You make a film, that's one part of it. Um, I'm probably better at selling films than I am at making them. But but if you can't sell a film, I always tell people, you can have the best film in the world, but unless you can sell it or have someone who can sell it on your team, and that's 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 what I have now helping friends with, selling their films, because if you can't sell it and it's great, then what's what's the point? You just made art for yourself. Uh, and your friends and your family when it's not going to have the impact that you probably want it to have. So, yeah. You know, you didn't actually write this as a tip, but just in hearing, you know, about your sort of growth over the years and and hearing what you're just saying, it it also seems like part of the what's important is recognizing your own strengths. Like you just said, maybe I'm better at selling films than making them, you know, whether that's true or not. It's it's interesting. I think, like, we all need to recognize – what we're really good at and put our effort towards that in the process and find the right people, as you said earlier, to fill in the other holes. Yeah. even So I guess that's why sales agents and distributors exist, because some people are not good at selling things themselves. So so those people probably, I guess, for taking 20-30%, if you would get $0 in otherwise, then then they are earning earning you money and earning themselves money at the same time. So I think it's just for people that I don't know if sales agents and distributors will exist in 10, 15 years. People say, oh, good producers can just sell things themselves, which is probably true. However, there are just different skill sets that everyone has. And, yeah, it's hard It's hard to, to figure things out. Um, so your next one <clears throat> feels very straightforward, but it's probably not as straightforward. Mind your budget. I mean, it's like, duh. But what are some of the big um, mistakes you see filmmakers, especially newer filmmakers, making when it comes to budgets? Yeah. So I'd say the biggest mistake that people make is they do not add contingency into their budgets. They think, I'm going to make a budget and I'm going to stick to this budget and nothing bad happens. This is called planning fallacy. There's this really good book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, it's it's a bestseller. It's, it's just a great business book. But it talks in one very small chapter about how everyone plans for best case scenarios. They never plan for worst case scenarios. Imagine you've budgeted a 20-day shoot, but then it turns out there's a freak snowstorm and then you have to start three days later. Well, now you're 15% over budget because you've 
started three days after and your whole crew was ready and you had to feed them and, and house them and, you know, switch your interviews around and change everything. It's just planning fallacy that everything will go perfectly. So if you don't add contingency into your budget, oof, yeah, mm-hmm. you have to. You have to. What percentage would you recommend? I think it depends on the budget. You know, I'm not going to say add 10% on a half million dollar budget because that's pretty expensive and I'd hope that people would be able to plan things right the first time. That's the other thing. You have to plan things right the first time and know exactly what you need. And that takes a good line producer working with a financial producer, which could be one person in some cases, but not always. But um, yeah, I'd say 10% is normal, but maybe at higher budgets, you could lower that to 7.5. I would not go lower than 7.5% contingency. And I know what you're probably thinking. Oh, we just raised $50,000 on Kickstarter. That's all we have for this. How can we add in 7.5% contingency? We'll deal with these problems when they happen. Well, they happen a lot. And then that means that most filmmakers are stuck dealing with problems because they didn't plan right. I would say if I raised $50,000 on Kickstarter, I'd make a movie with a $40,000 budget or something like that and then and then plan that there's going to be some some areas afterwards that are going to be a bit messy. Yeah. I think that's a great tip. Uh, what what are some other sort of not necessarily budget, but just mistakes that you've seen now that you you can recognize early? I mean, just another simple one is just people forget to add tax, right? Right? We in New York is what eight and a half percent sales tax, and people just will budget things without tax, just like a stupid, silly error. It's not. It's it's it is pretty amateur when you think about it, but. But it might not be on a filmmaker's mind or even on a producer's mind. I guess I'm always shocked at how little most producers understand finance. And it's not necessarily the same skill set, right? There are financial producers, there are creative producers, and there are line producers. And I argue that you have to be a little bit good at all of them. Mm -hmm. I've found people who have stronger skills in one area than another area. But I think it would be beneficial to everyone to know a little bit of all three. Yeah. Um, and then your fifth principle from from our article was hire slow, fire fast, which feels like it comes from another maybe hard lesson learned. Um, not even really a hard lesson. Uh, well, I guess maybe the hiring slow part is from a, hi- a hard lesson. But it just means when you have to hire someone, let's say you have to hire an editor for a project, interview five editors for that project, get to know them a little bit, take them out for a coffee pay for their coffee too. They'll they'll like you more if you do. Um, And understand who they are, understand their time commitments, understand do they have a kid at home that needs to be taken care of from 5 p.m. every day? Does that mean they'd rather work from 7 a.m. and end at 3 p.m.? You know, work with people to understand how you're going to work with them. I don't think people, I I think people hire too fast in general. And it's like, oh, we heard this guy is awesome. Well, this guy could be awesome, but is he awesome for this project? That is the other thing that people need to think about. Just because someone has done, you know, you can slap on Emmy-nominated, BAFTA-winning, blah, blah, blah. Just because someone has done that does not mean they're right for your project. Or, like, your personality. Or your personality, exactly. Or your team's personality or whoever they're going. And it also might not be you they're working with. So that's another reason to hire slow, Right. If I'm hiring an editor and that editor has to work with another director, then I need to make sure that they get along well and they like each other and they understand how they're going to work. Because, And that shouldn't be my decision alone. It's, it's a team decision. It's total team sport. Like that's, 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 that's my biggest knowledge. 
everything is a team sport. So someone has to fit into that team just like they would anything else. And, and, and when you think about it, making a film is a crazy process, right? Like companies try so hard to hire the right person and then they, they can get those people to work with them for years. But making a film, in many cases, a few months, a couple months, this, that, and you're trying to find the best people you can, but it doesn't really make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much true. And then the other part of what you said about firing fast, if someone is giving you problems, it is, again, we're talking about working with people for a few months. So if they're giving you a problem for a week, two weeks, well, that is not going to get better probably over the course of a month or two. And you just have to fire fast. We've had to fire a handful of people because they just haven't worked with our team. And it's nothing against them. They might have tried. They might have not tried. They might have thought their expectations might have been different than what our reality is. A lot of people think there's glamour in this business, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, the biggest problem. When I tell people 20% of my time is spent in the field, 80% of my time is spent sitting in front of a computer like anyone else working in an office. And that means if I I have to reach out to a ton of people, and that means I would expect the same from my employees, that they have to go out there and hustle, 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 because no one, we don't have fancy offices, we don't have fancy desks, we don't have benefits packages. If you want to work in film, it is there. you could find other jobs that are, pay you better than working in film, tons of other jobs that pay you better. However, you do get some forms of you know external gratification, but they come at the end of a long road. And I think that is the biggest thing that young people especially do not understand in the film world. Maybe it's different in the studio land, but in the studio land, you're going to be someone's assistant, assistant, assistant until you're 45 years old. Uh, in indie film, the advantage is if you work hard, you'll get somewhere faster. Mm-hmm. The main gist of these conversations seems to be something along the lines of where there's a will, there's a way. You can make a short film with a lot of money or with virtually none. The important thing is that you just make it. If you need the funding, seek it out. If not, then go out there and make something with the resources you've got. That's what our next group of filmmakers did, and it earned them a spot at the Sundance Film Festival in 2018. Oakley Anderson Moore organized this roundtable with filmmakers Pete Lee, Anna Margaret Holliman, Kamau Bilau, Shandeen Tome, and Diane Obamsawin. And together, they explained what finally got them to just commit and make their damn projects already. Here's an excerpt from our most popular episode of the year, Why You Need to Stop Making Excuses and Make a Short Film. Why should people make shorts? Like, what is it about a short that you derived meaning from on this project? Um, short, it, it, it's uh, a good... Uh, I don't think it's a, a hierarchy of shorts and then uh, a future. But it depends. Uh, if you want to make film, for sure it's, it be, it's best to begin shorts and from your neighborhood or something. Uh, the tiniest is the better. You can even, uh, if I, from someone who want, wants to do animation, you can even do an animated film with the photo booth of your, with the, 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 your two fingers as characters <laughs> and, and do a, a, a great story. So it's important to focus on the, may, maybe more the, what you want to, to say, uh, the story you want to tell, and then it not, it's not important, keep it simple. So it's what I like with comic strip. It's even more, um, uh, how do we say, low profile. Mm-hmm. But I like it. So sometimes it's there are people are very shame. They're very uncomfortable incom- with themselves. 
and it's why it's, it's why it's so touching uh, comic strip because they give a, a lot of themselves because they hide somewhere and in the door and then after they give us uh, the part uh, the intimate part of themselves uh, so the shorts is a little bit like this i think if you want to begin uh, and you don't have to do a feature mm-hmm. um i would say that uh like watching shorts over like the past few years and that sort of thing they are like the most intimate experience of filmmaking because they're usually like people who are like starting out or they're like kind of like uh finding their voice or like finding their vision and like that sort of thing and it's it's really great to see shorts that aren't like they don't have big budgets they they like work with what they have like you were saying and um I think it it really is like uh, a pure uh, perspective of filmmaking and um, I think that I mean you can do it so yeah <laughs> and it, it's achievable it feels way more achievable than a feature so yeah the concept of a short is just really great I think I don't know I think um, a lot of my favorite pieces especially animation actually or short films uh, off the top of my head I can think like Pixar's night and day uh, or day and night, I forgot which one is which. Look it up. Uh, it's <laughs> it's it's amazing. I can't think of it. If it's if it's like too much longer, I think it mm-hmm. just does not. You know, it, it's not as interesting. Or uh, pieces by a uh, uh, Quebecois uh, artist, uh, Frederick Beck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, like I just can't. You know, and there's some like there's some pieces they're so bursting with energy that if you mm-hmm. see somebody in the dark for 90 minutes, you wear them out. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, some things are just great as shorts and stories too. Uh, how many times have we seen like short stories stretched out as novels and you, you got like what you wanted out of it for 20 pages and you still put it in your like bathroom and try to finish the rest of mm-hmm. it, you know? Um, but for me though, um, I think a lot of it is that, you know, filmmaking just a lot of responsibility. Uh, a lot of, if you're lucky, you get to work with people you really like. And they're all placing, um, you know, they're all placing so much trust in your hands. So sometimes it, it shorts, I think, just <laughs> for me, alleviates some of that responsibility. You know, if you're, I don't know, if you're certain, I'll totally go for it. Uh, even if you're uncertain, I think s- some people should go for it anyway. But for me, I just feel like they are people I should answer to, and they are really talented people I should answer to. And I know that I can um, keep everyone happy and fulfilled for five days, mm-hmm. but yeah. I don't feel that amazing about keeping them around for <laughs> 20 days. It's uh, a long time for so, anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's that's for me too. The same thing that everybody else has said, uh, and I think to add maybe just a little bit to it, maybe is just that it gives you a chance to to do it because it's, it's it takes a lot of resources to get the feature going. Maybe I mean it doesn't have to, but like it seems infinitely more resources are needed. I mean you could do the thing where your short is like a lot of resources, but like it's a very expensive art form to practice, right? So it's not very easy as a poor person to be like I'm gonna make a film so like you try to do what you can with what you got and try to take that spirit to each project I think don't change that when you when you start making if you do start making bigger budget films or whatever because uh, I think you could take more risks maybe uh, but it, yeah it just gives you that chance to practice because it's just like anything right practice makes perfect right like hopefully if you make one film you're gonna make a better one and then you'll make a better one so the more you can do it the better obviously 
hopefully you get. For those listening at home, Kamal makes beautiful hand gestures as he talks. <laughs> I t- I, I'm always right. in front we of We all class. agree, right? right? Know, yeah, I'm like, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I'm always yes. doing this. Nobody else is talking. He's still doing that. He's Nobody else is talking. Nobody else talks with their hands. Yeah. yeah. Very strange. I'll do it too. <laughs> now. Flourish. All right, let's suppose those listening at home. I'm Mod still so nervous. I'm just up. ripping the mic. I'm like, and... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what everyone said, I mean, I think short stories are my favorite things to read, and my favorite writers are short story writers, and I I love the way you can do, th- just how you can finish a short story, and it just lingers, and it sticks with you, um, and I think that kind of reflects what you were saying about the intimacy of shorts. I mean, shorts programs, for me, can sometimes be very, very difficult, because you don't know what's about to be seen next mm-hmm. and it you can go on such a roller coaster mm-hmm. i mean one moment you're just completely devastated and crying and the next moment you're laughing wildly and then mm-hmm. and it's it can actually be really anxiety inducing <laughs> and and i think that's amazing that you can still go into a theater and have that experience sometimes it can be pure torture too because you're just like you leave and you're like i need a drink you know yeah. but that speaks i think about the impact of short um, films and obviously it's helpful that our attention spans have gotten a lot smaller because of the uh-huh. internet. Am I right, guys? Yeah. Um, but I what do. What did you say? I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was, I was just Instagramming this, um, just choosing a filter. Um, uh, but yeah, and I think also I was just really worried about. I've been on a million indie film sets, and as you know, I said at the top of this, like I was familiar with things but I also felt really nervous about other about not knowing everything about cameras and aspect ratios in the way that I would like to and I then was just reminded on a set like when you to to do a short is the best thing to it's the best way to start so you can learn that Mm -hmm. and also realize that you're not totally inept um and so I think any any holes or deficit that you feel like you're having a short film is a really good place to um to figure out where you feel strong and where you feel yeah. weak. And um, so when you finally get all that, all those millions of dollars for your feature, <laughs> you're good to go. Yeah. I mean, it helps you, you, you build your visual vocabulary, right? Cause you don't like, how does a hug look? It may look, it may work. Or you think you need to like say something to get that across, but. Or just allow, it gives you a little bit of currency to mm-hmm. show people. I think yeah. a lot of things on paper, uh, I don't know. I feel like we are entering this stage where a lot of like big films are just built on like lookbooks and totally. papers. Mm-hmm. Ghost in the Shell remake anybody? Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm being so hot takey right now. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and, and so I think I think making something short. I think sometimes it fills in the gap where words and 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 again, it, I think it builds either trust or lack of trust for people having you. And sometimes mm-hmm. that is good. Sometimes there are people who shouldn't uh, uh, work for you uh, uh, or you shouldn't work with and mm-hmm. they see you're short and you kind of understand. So so it breaks boundaries and but also draws on boundaries that are very useful, I think, in this mm. business. Yeah, that's good. Any short film will do, but if you got a documentary short, this could be an especially good time to go out there and make it. Our final excerpt today is from a roundtable that Liz Nord led back at South by Southwest with a group of documentary short filmmakers, including jury award winner Charlie Tyrell, Mohamed Goriastani, and Leah Gallant to discuss their path through this golden age of documentary. Last but not least, here are selections from their conversation in an episode titled, Why Now is the Time to Make Your Doc Short. 
how do you decide what makes something a short? Like, why is this going to be a short story versus something that needs the space to explore with this film or in general? Good question. Um, I think think in my case, it was, um, you know, knowing that you're going to make a short kind of forces you to be specific. Um, And there's so much of Miriam's story that we didn't tell. Um, But, um, you know, we decided to focus on a few themes, um, build out some sort of um, scene list that kind of was able to map out into a roughly 15-minute landing uh, for the the runtime. And... You know, making those hard decisions of, well, we can't talk about some of the specifics that, you know, the interview itself, we had 10 hours of audio, you know. Um, I did five interviews with her. Um, And it's tough to boil that down to 15 minutes. Um, And there's a ton of stuff that's not there. So I think it's really just about a choice of deciding what what is the ultimate thing you want the audience to take from this and soak from um, her story. And then everything has to be in service of that. So, and then when I'm working with the editors, the thing I say is like, you know, we're kind of on this highway. We have to make sure we get to the, to the uh, the lookout to see the sunrise on time. There's going to be some pretty exits, but let's not take one of those if we're going to miss our final destination. Mm. You know, so, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of how we approached it. Yeah, I I think that's a really good question because I I feel like, you know, every story could be a feature or a short depending on how much time you spend with it. But knowing I had a time constraint with Inga and um, I also made it as part of the Jacob Burns Film Center has a class called Creative Culture where you're producing a short film under um, the director, Sean Weiner, who's also my producer. And so I knew I was making a short, so that's a little different. But overall, I mean... There's no right or wrong way to approach it, but I guess I just seek out kind of um, when I'm looking at a feature versus a short, is a character going through a dramatic change from the beginning to the end? And like, do I have enough time to show that change? And um, sometimes, you know, it's, yeah, it's like the story will reveal itself to you. And if it's showing that and you need more time with it, make a feature. But if you're like, no, I think this is really like the story is about X and, you know, I don't, we don't need to spend more time on it if this is a story about X. So it's sort of like um, one of those things where I think you kind of unveil it while you're going through the process or you decide that sometimes. But sometimes, yeah, you know, you're going to make a short and you have your constraint. There's a certain a comfort when you're doing narrative work because everything's like not real at the end of the day, some level. Right. Um, but for me, the learning to interview people, getting them to bring out what I want and also making sure it's going to work for the edit, um, has, is to me like a masterclass in like working with actors, mm. you know, cause you're working with people that aren't trained. You're trying to get them as normal people who don't think their story is interesting to realize that their story is interesting and speak to you in a way that makes them realize that they do have something to say, mm. you know? And I think that's the, always the biggest hump to get over is making the subject realize like what you experienced or what you are going through or, you know, it's actually important. Um, and as far as the bigger scheme, for me, the work that I would like to do and I'm trying to do is always about giving some sort of voice to um, people who haven't been able to speak um, on their terms or, you know, um, aren't represented, you know. Um, I'm an immigrant, 
you know. So I'm always going to, and I grew up in Silicon Valley. So I was, we were, you know, my parents did not work in technology. You know, we, we were artists. So I, I had an experience of being, you know, from a family that was very unseen as far as like what art, you know, we, we, we go around like, oh, you're from, you grew up in San Jose. Oh, you're your parents, you know, tech. And it's like, no, we, we, we grew up in like an apartment complex. You know what? Dad's 80 still works full time. You know what I mean? So, um, I always, I'm very people who, you know, the ordinary person is very, um, fascinating to me. Um, so as far as that's how I kind of see it fitting in with the greater body of work. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. I definitely, you know, hear that and agree with, you know, in my process too. It's, I see this, um, when I, when I'm on a feature, you know, or a narrative film set, um, I can see that there, like, I sort of feel comfortable in it because I'm like, wow, everything's planned out and mm. everything. But then I realize, you know, even though it's so, it can be really hard emotionally to make a film, I want to be around people and I treat it like a learning experience for myself too because sometimes I'll, you know, um, read about something or hear about something and my first question is I want to know more. So in a way, it's a little bit of a selfish process because mm. I want to learn more about a specific community or uh, underrepresented um, population and I want to know you know why how they've been wronged in the past how have they been misrepresented in the media and I kind of like then from there the question is like how can I change that and because of my relationship with this person I see them as like a friend you know like Ingo is like my grandma you know and I feel like the characters I'm with even if I don't agree with them politically or socially, you know, I, I feel like they're my friends. So in a way, you know, ethically, there's boundaries to, to be had with that. And you have to stay objective as you can. But I think, you know, that brings a delicacy to your projects, whether it's a, fit, a narrative or a, a doc. It's like, you know, when you work with people, real real people and real stories, you kind of feel like you have to create this this delicacy and you want people to experience what you've experienced with them. So I guess that yeah, does, I mean, I'm working on a feature about the last abortion clinic on the U.S.-Mexico border and people who don't fit neatly in pro-life or pro-choice lines. And oh, that's it's interesting. Like, Is that a doc or a narrative? Doc, mm-hmm. yeah. So, but, you know, in some ways we are seeing it as like, it could be a narrative. And, right. Um, and I think it's, it's just because, yeah, there's, there's so many um, misrepresentations of folks. And um, I love when somebody watches and when I watch a film and I'm like, whoa, I, didn't know that before or that changed my perspective and I, I crave to create recreate that in films that I make oh. yeah for me there's a lot of overlap between what you guys said and um, but uh, I mostly work in narrative as well and um, for but for me overall I look at project to project like it's what's right in front of me at the time and whether that's a 60 second short or you know 10 hour long super feature that you know whatever that doesn't exist um (laughs) you know i take it as it comes um but the biggest thing that i really appreciate with documentary is again like what mo was saying like working with real people is very similar to working with actors you're trying to draw out an answer or a response and uh an overlap that i try and get through all my films is to create a sense of um empathy for your characters and i mean and this isn't empathy, like, oh, uh, like, look at this poor person and feel pity for them. This mm. is, you know, empathy where you want to kind of stand beside them. And, relate. Uh, yeah. yeah, and relate. And, I mean, the, the documentary landscape is 
a pretty great training ground for that. Um, when I was thinking about this conversation, I was thinking about it being like kind of a golden age of docs. Like we keep talking about peak TV, which is of course happening, but I feel like this short doc form, like suddenly there's all these places to see short docs and there's kind of an appetite for them. And even the like little things that show up on Facebook with the subtitles, they are short docs. So I'm curious kind of what your take is on this, like this moment in short doc. It's definitely exciting. I mean, um, uh, I was really lucky enough to head out to Sundance this year and check out the short docs and Charlie Swim was there and I was super, super inspired, like immensely inspired because everything is so different. Like, you know, you're watching a short doc and, and I went, you know, I'm like, is this a feat? Is this a narrative? Are you sure this is a doc? You know, and that it, to me is like incredible and the different styles that there are. And it's just, it's going to benefit all of us because there's so many places of inspiration to draw now and, um, you know, recreating the medium. I think it's really exciting to see how, you know, we, all, all of our films sort of, even though I'm a more traditional doc, but kind of transcend the medium in some ways and try, are trying new things and especially your films and so it's so exciting um and hopefully it'll be lucrative too <laughs> because you know making stocks for no no money um can, can, can always s- deliver pizzas someday yeah like, that's true I, yeah so <laughs> that would be like a nice a nice addition to to uh the situation but obviously i don't do it for that <laughs> Clearly. Well, well, the thing that I love is the people, there's, I feel like there's kind of just people who watch yeah. short docs and people that don't. And some people, yeah. they yeah, on Facebook occasionally catch one and check it out. But the people that love short docs love short docs. And <laughs> if you yeah. really talk to them, you think it would be all that they watch and they've never seen anything over, you know, 40 minutes long. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's great right now. And, I mean, there's so much, um, I mean, people complain about, saturation right now and that there's so many films coming out right now and you know it's hard to stand out but that kind of just raises the bar more than anything and you're seeing I feel like every day I see a new film that blows me away and not just on like a technical level but on a way to really get into a story and hook onto one and you know point it back at you the viewer and all that stuff so yeah it's totally a good time to be alive. And those are all our favorite moments from the No Film School podcast interviews in 2018. If you missed parts one and two, never fear. You can check them out on whatever podcast platform you choose to use. If you've liked what you heard over the past couple of weeks, please subscribe and rate us to be up to date on every single upcoming interview for 2019. We'll be back from Park City next week with a whole bunch of new episodes that you don't want to miss. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim and No Film School at No Film School. We'll see you next week.